Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper are titles given to a sacrament, ordinance, or rite celebrated by Christians around the world. The origin of this act of worship comes from the institution of Jesus Christ, but the meaning and practice have a long and broad history leading to, as we all know, a wide breadth of opinions and consequent divisions. Last week we began our discussion of this topic by looking at the witness of the early church fathers. But of course, the most important source for understanding the Eucharist is the witness of Scripture itself, which is where we will begin today on Deep in Scripture. Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International. And uh, I'm joined today by my partner, Dr. Kenneth Howell. It's always a pleasure, Ken, for you to join us. Are you way over there in uh, Illinois? And are you out of snow <laughs> yes. yet, Ken? Yes, we are, but it's supposed to snow again tonight. It's, so. <laughs> it, it, it's amazing. Uh, that It's a crazy uh, winter. Well, the point of it is that one of the key aspects of growing in holiness is through suffering. And so I think mm-hmm. this winter has been a message from the Lord <laughs> that there's an awful lot of us that need to grow in holiness because he's been causing us. <laughs> well, one of my friends said we, that God's asking us to give him a spring for Lent. So. <laughs> there we go. We'll jump right to summer. <laughs> and on my farm, I just as well give up spring because in Ohio, uh, spring on my farm is nothing but one big mud hole. So I, the, Oh, my. Oh. But thank well, you all. It's good to be with you, Marcus. Yeah, it is, it's good, Ken. And thank you all for joining us on the program. Uh, again, if you'd like to find out more about the Deep in Scripture program, the Coming Home Network, and about past episodes of Deep in Scripture, go to chnetwork.org. Or you can also go to deepinscripture.com uh, and uh, find out about lots of things. And we'd love to have your comments, your emails, questions. In fact, if you have a scripture that we you'd like us to discuss, uh, uh, I'm sure I can twist Ken's arm because uh, there's lots of good stuff in there. And uh, what we're going to do this week is continue with our uh, discussion. Actually, the last two weeks, we've been kind of moving into the early church fathers, and now we're doing an end round coming back to Scripture. We, we looked at the early church fathers to demonstrate how the early witness of the Christian writers were a continuity that they were carrying on that which they had received. They weren't inventing anything new, but they were passing on faithfully what they had received, what their audience they could perceive already knew, but yet, and Ken, maybe this is a a good place to bring this in. We were going to mention it later, but isn't, in fact, one of the main reasons that both the New Testament letters, as well as the early church fathers, one of the main reasons that these documents exist at all is because we had the coming together of different cultures trying to understand how to carry out the teachings of our Lord Jesus as they were impinging on their new cultures as Christianity, as the message of Christ uh, entered into these new cultures around the Mediterranean. Yeah, I think it's it's clear from the book of Acts that <clears throat> you have a Jewish faith that has been adopted by those who know the Jewish religion, you know, particularly Paul, because he trained uh, in all likelihood to be a rabbi. 
And then with his conversion, Paul goes out as the great missionary to spread the gospel in places where the Jewish faith was not known hardly at all to this Gentile culture, which was a polytheistic culture. And so the transition from a Jewish to a Greek or Greco-Roman culture um, gives, gives rise to a lot of documents, certainly the New Testament. You see that in Galatians, you see in Colossians. Uh, you see it in First Corinthians and what we're going to talk about today. So, yeah, that's absolutely right. And anyone that knows anything about the history of their own particular Christian tradition recognizes this is the reality of humanity. I was brought up Lutheran. Yeah. Well, there's four different Lutheran groups in America, the LCA, then there's the ECLA, and then the Missouri Synod and the Wisconsin Synod. And I think there's more than that. Well, part of that was different Lutheran cultures coming into America carrying out their Lutheran practice and worship. The same with Presbyterians. You've got Scottish Presbyterians landing on American coast into the American culture. How do you live this out? So we understand it becomes a constant challenge to the Christian faith throughout the history of the church. Well, this is where we have to, um, this is where we need a long stretch of history to sort out what is the core of the gospel, the core of what Christian teaching is from cultural change. And you see how difficult it is for people to to distinguish those when you see churches today that are basically just adopting a secular view of the world and, and baptizing it and making it and calling it Christian when it really is not Christian at all. And that's been a problem in every generation. People uh, either bringing too much of the secular world into the church or conforming the church to the secular world, which is the same thing, really. Boy, I almost hate, hate to give another example, but, uh, you know, I, I have a struggling little farm in Ohio, and I'm trying to learn how to do that because I have no farming background whatsoever. Ever, so I read books and I talk to people. But again, you have this practice of farming, the value of farming, rural life passed on. And we have a yeah. lot of modern back-to-the-earth off-the-grid, sustainable farming folk today that's become almost the religion. And in many ways, what they're trying to do, they're trying to imitate the lives of their grandparents without the faith of their grandparents. They're oh, doing, they're doing yeah, their yeah. farm life and the farm practices, and they're, they're promoting it in magazine after book, but they're ignoring the, the foundational Christian faith of our grandparents yeah, and great-grandparents yeah. that made their farming a value. Meaningful? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we, we can even see that in these new megachurches, don't we, Ken? I mean, they're, they're practicing aspects of Christianity, but they're ignoring the foundational theology and philosophy that was passed down from the very beginning. Well, I'm reminded of our Lord's words just before he returned to heaven in the Ascension, when he said, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I have commanded you. And this is, I mean, what's one reason that I became Catholic is because I found in it the true fullness of the Christian faith. It's the natural trajectory because it does try to retain the fullness rather than just be selective and sort of got cafeteria Christianity. So, uh, yeah, it's... It's, it's crucial to have everything that Christ taught us. And what we're referring to is pointing to the underlying problem with an, a sola scriptura Christianity because you have different cultures, different ethnic groups, 
uh, different memories. Some people remember one thing and forget another, and they pass it on, and pretty soon, you know, like that little telephone drill we used to do as kids, you know, that... Um, so, you know, how do we know, for example, in the topic we're looking at, the Eucharist, the communion, the Lord's Supper? Well, is it important? Uh, what's it mean? Yeah. Is it essential to our worship? Is it just something we can do or not do? Was it something indeed that our yeah. Lord passed on? I mean, that's the key. It really is. And yeah. last week we, we began the study, Ken, uh, with looking at the early church fathers with the intent that we were going to ooze our way back to Scripture. And one of the reasons we focused on the Didache, Ignatius's letters to the Philadelphians and the Smyrnians, uh, we do see those in your books, which you wrote recently, which, again, I highly recommend to the audience, as well as Justin Martyr. I didn't mention last week, folk, that the translation you heard of Justin Martyr was Ken's own. He, he's a uh, language scholar. Um, but, Ken, we don't want to r- completely revisit last week, but maybe just as a reminder of the folk, uh, give them a taste if you would, of the authoritative, clear message of these early church fathers when it comes to the fact that, number one, they believed that what they were promoting and practicing was nothing more than a clear continuation of that which they received, and number two, how when we read the early church fathers, there's no question that they accepted Christ's words very seriously about the Eucharistic mm-hmm. elements, bread and wine. Yeah, I think the two points that you bring up there are so important. And, and we see them both in Scripture and in these earliest church fathers. Uh, the one point is that uh, the, the obligation of Christian pastors is to carry on, to pass on, that's the word in Latin, trotere, to, to tradition, to pass on that which they have received. And you hear Paul saying that. Uh, in in First Corinthians, uh, chapter uh, chapter eleven, verse two, and he says that um, I praise you uh, because you are following the traditions that I passed on to you. In other words, <clears throat> uh, Ignatius, the, the form uh, of the Eucharist that's being uh, suggested in Ignatius is not his invention; it's something that he had received. You hear that same underlying sense in the Didache as well. Um, now the second point is the one about that comes so clearly, especially in Justin Martyr, around 150 A.D., uh, where he says that we do not receive these this bread and this wine as common food and drink, but we receive it in the manner that Jesus Christ, who was made flesh through the Word of God, he took on flesh and blood for our salvation. So too we are taught. This is made the Eucharist by the prayer from him that is, in fact, it is the body and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. And so it nourishes our blood and flesh by way of transformation. In other words, Justin Martyr is is clearly taking um, the words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood, in the most realistic sense that you could imagine. This really is the same flesh of the Jesus who'd walked on earth and who suffered and and died and rose again. You know, I'm wondering, Ken, looking back on my own experience for so many years as a Protestant minister, a later pastor, is that we're called to imitate Jesus. Hmm. And especially as a pastor, 
we have responsibility to to imitate him and then tell others imitate me as I imitate him that's that's an imitation of st. Paul okay however there's an incident a couple incidents where our Lord was confronted on the authority of his teaching and you'd have rabbi such-and-such over here and rabbi such-and-such over here and the norm was that if you're going to have authority you're going to be connected to another authority you're going to quote rabbi such-and-such or rabbi fred Mm -hmm. or rabbi bill you know that's your authority (laughs) yeah but the crowds were amazed that jesus spoke on his own authority and so we see this model of jesus being in a sense freed up from having to repeat bishop uh, rabbi fred or rabbi bill or rabbi ed no he speaks on his own authority because he's the son of god yeah ken i'm wondering if that becomes kind of a a dangerous trap for sola scriptura preachers to feel this pressure to speak upon their own authority I've got to have the answers. I've got the scripture in the scripture alone. And when I speak, I'm not I'm not tied to passing on what I received. What I'm supposed to do is guided by the spirit, interpret the scripture for myself. And then with that authority, proclaim it to my people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's a very great temptation. I think you 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 particularly struggled with that a lot in your in your coming to the church i I remember you talk about this issue of authority was so so important for you um and you can clearly see anybody's been a teacher knows the pressure of having to give the answers to to questions and the the better tack is to simply um, admit that we don't know about certain things but uh, the human whatever human desire or pride sort of comes in there and says no 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 i gotta have an answer so sometimes we jump on an answer even if it isn't a correct one well the reason um, i point yeah. that out ken is that the writer of the didache was not presuming that he had independent authority to come yes, up with his true. own understanding he was passing right. on that which he had received yeah. ignatius of antioch was a bishop was passing yeah, on yeah. that which he received. Justin Martyr was passing yeah. on that which he had received. In fact, he says the, the apostles in those memoirs by them called gospels handed on in this way the things they were commanded. The apostles wrote down what they had received from Jesus. So immediately we don't have this tradition in the church where every individual preacher now imitates Jesus by having his own independent authority. No, now our authority is Jesus in the church mm-hmm. he establishes in his apostles and so on from from apostle to apostle to disciple on and on we have the passing on this tradition which we see clearly in the letter of St. Paul yeah that's right in that passage I read just a few moments ago uh, that verse from 1 Corinthians 11 1 and 2 he says become imitators of me as I am of Christ I praise you that you remember me in all things, and even as I passed on to you, so you hold to the traditions, the the handing down, the things that are handed down uh, uh, to you. I think it's, <clears throat> I think it's of the utmost importance to see the liberating um, power of tradition. 
when you it's like a child inside of a, a play area when you've got it let's say you have a, a a park and there's a there's a fence there and the children play inside and as long as they stay inside they can have the greatest time and enjoy themselves but if they get over the fence well maybe that's where the cliff is and they're going to fall yeah. down they're going to hurt themselves so tradition has a has a and and power of engendering joy precisely because we're living within the boundaries and the freedom that that engenders. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody, joined by Dr. Kenneth Hall. Well, Ken, let's look at the 1 Corinthians 11 passage then, beginning in verse 23. You want to do that? And we'll, we'll kind of take, yeah, it, that, take it line by line and, and talk about it. And, and uh, I, I'm it's hard for me to believe that a, any Christian listening to our discussion hasn't heard this before because this is the, the primary source where the, the words of institution come for the celebration of communion, the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist. Because um, Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's see, Ken. I mean, there's so many things Mm -hmm. to get here, but uh, maybe begin by just in a general way, recognizing that the core of this is the serious, the serious intention of our Lord Jesus, that this would become not only the center of liturgy, but the center of life. Yeah. Yeah, the beauty of the Catholic faith in this regard is that it it says that the liturgy is the very center of our life. Everything, as it says in the documents of the Second Vatican Council, Everything um, flows from the liturgy and comes back to the liturgy. The Eucharist is the source and summit of our lives. I think it's worth pointing out here, Marcus, that um, this is the only book in the New Testament where there's any explicit and extended discussion of the Eucharist uh, or the liturgy. And we might ask ourselves, why? Well, some people that just sort of look at the Bible, I would say, through a statistical model, I'd say, well, that means it's not very important. But in but if you think about the historical and real human situation, it highlights the importance even more. In other words, Paul had verbally passed on. He had taught these Corinthians when he was there as a missionary. He taught them this liturgy. He taught them the importance of it. But now... And there was no need to teach that about in other places. He taught about the liturgy in other places, you know, in all likelihood. But there was no need to bring it up because that wasn't an issue in those other letters like Galatians and Romans and Ephesians. But it but becomes a, lit, a problem in Corinth, and that's why he brings it up. In other words, there must have been many things that Paul conveyed to people verbally, which never surface in the New Testament, simply because there wasn't a problem. They understood it all. Now, when there's a problem in Corinth with the liturgy, now he has to address the issue. As you said, Marcus, I mean, there's there's so much in here. I, I think one of the... Um, 
one of the things that strikes me the most is that in this text in Paul, there is a uh, there is this phrase, "Do this in remembrance of me." If you look at the four major <clears throat> accounts, the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then the one in First Corinthians that we're reading, this phrase, "Do this in remembrance of me," only occurs in Luke. It doesn't occur in Matthew and Mark. Now, why does it do that? Well, I think because clearly, as the book of Acts implies, Luke was Paul's convert, so to speak. He came to the knowledge of the faith through Paul. So what Paul is giving us here then is reflected in Luke's account of the supper of the Lord or the institution of the Eucharist. But even more important is what remembrance means. Um, I'm just curious from, from you, Marcus, what, when you thought of you, uh, do this in remembrance of me for so many years as a Christian, what did it mean to you at that point? Yeah, well, <clears throat> certainly, um, given my particular Christian culture, which was originally Lutheran and then later Congregationalist, Charismatic, and then eventually Presbyterian, where I served, is that um, it was essentially understood is that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are remembering an, an important event in the life of Christ uh, that emphasized his sacrifice for us. And so by remembering it, it meant to strengthen our faith. Uh, like when we have the 4th of July, every year, or Memorial Day, or Labor Day. You know, we, we mm-hmm. take a time apart to remember the sacrifice that uh, men and women did years ago, lest we forget. Lest we forget. Yeah. The Jews that uh, want to always make sure we remember the horrific Holocaust of World War II, lest we forget. And that whole idea that uh, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, right? uh, I'm not sure how that goes. So that's all that it meant to me. It didn't carry... So it was a mental... There was no spiritual, sacramental conveyance of grace. I knew in my Calvinist mm-hmm. background there should have been a, an understanding of a spiritual reality of Christ there because we believed he was there in a unique way. But yeah. I really think, in, you know, basically the, you know, the common view amongst us was really it was just uh, bucking us up on our faith, remembering what he did, so lest we forget. Uh, what he did. So it's a time of special meditation, so to speak, for you. Yeah. Yeah. On on the Lord's death. Well, that's essentially what it was for me as well. Um, and then when I began to investigate this a little bit more, I asked myself, does the Greek word anamnesis mean the same thing as remembrance does in English? And the more that I studied it in the culture, both the Greek and the and the Hebrew culture. I came to realize that the word has a very different meaning, and I'm by no means the first person to have ever seen this. There's, there have been you know, pages and pages written about this. But the word anamnesis in the Greek culture in which these Corinthians had lived was perhaps imbued with a Platonic idea 
that remembrance, the synomnesis, is a calling down of the perfect spiritual world into this world. So that when we remember, quote unquote, when we engage in this anomnesis, it's more than just a mental act. It's a thing in which the reality of the spiritual world comes down into the the physical world. <clears throat> and uh, that seemed to fit what Paul was talking about here. So that if he says, like he said in the earlier chapter, chapter 10, <laughs> that you're partakers of the body and blood of Christ, that means that you're partaking of something heavenly. And that's always been the question among differences among Christians. How does the heavenly Christ, if it's his body and blood, get down to us mm-hmm. on, on earth? The other, the, second, the other half of that was that if you look back in Exodus chapter 12, you'll see the word remembrance, or the Hebrew word zakor, zikor, uh, occurs a lot. The Passover celebration was called in Exodus 12, a day of remembrance. This is in verse 14. Um, but when they, when they did, when they had this Passover celebration, they did it as a remembrance of a past event, but not as you mentioned, like the 4th of July, but rather as a past event which is being replayed and is just as real in the present as it was in the past. So you put those two ideas together, the Greek idea and the Hebrew idea. When Paul says, do this in remembrance of me, he's saying that on the one hand, this is a remembrance of a past event in which that event is being replayed right now. It's just exactly what the Catholic Church teaches, that in the Eucharistic celebration of the Church, the liturgy, the crucifixion, the resurrection, are, in a sense, taking place again. And then the other part of it is that there is that that the reality of Christ's body and blood from heaven is being brought down to us in the celebration. So there's much more to this idea, do this in remembrance of me, than just a mental recollection. Yeah, we may not go through it today, of course, but the whole section in John chapter 6 about the body and blood, the the, the bread of life discourse, talks about this intimacy of Christ abiding within us. We may come back to that later, but let's take a break now, Ken, and we'll come back and pick up some more passages from 1 Corinthians 11. We'll see you in a little bit, everyone. God bless you. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings Harken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, go to the store link at chnetwork.org. Thank you. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. 
Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Brodi, joined today by Dr. Howell, and we're uh, in the middle of looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and, and uh, focusing on the topic of the communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, and its origins as well as its meaning. And Ken, I, I had a thought that I wanted to pose to you. Um, uh, you know, you and I both went through seminary. You went through it far longer than me. Um, and maybe you needed more than me. Uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's true, it did. <laughs> no, I don't think I could handle more. That's the, that's the issue. You had much more privilege of doing two PhD programs. But um, it seemed to me that by, even though I went to an evangelical Protestant seminary, that the underlying presumption... Uh, when so many scholars looked at ideas, uh, liturgy, doctrine, is that they were presuming in kind of an evolutionary progress of thinking. And one can see, going back to St. Lorenz, um, who I think in, what was he, in the 5th century, I think, 5th or 6th century, mm-hmm. when he was talking about how, how ideas, doctrines developed, we see it later with Newman and his essay in the development of doctrine. Oh, but you mean Vincent of Lerens? Vincent oh, yeah. of Lerens, you know, he was kind yeah, of the yeah, core yeah. of what Newman built on. And yeah, then, yeah. you know, this idea that the Trinity or the divinity of Christ or the authority of a pope or the authority of a church or even our moral doctrines that they develop over time. And we live in a culture that presumes that about everything. We also That's live true. in a culture that presumes we're more intelligent today than they were back then, which is, <laughs> which is a false assumption. Totally absurd <laughs> when you look at it. But the reason I brought this up is that it, it just seems to make more sense to me when you think about our Lord's love for his people and his love for his church, that if our Lord sacrificed himself, gave himself, became human and sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins, and then intended there to be a church, that he wouldn't merely leave it up to us in uh, yeah. the, the different cultures. And the reason I bring this up at the beginning of Luke, you had mentioned earlier that Luke and Paul share this idea of am, 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 yeah, anamnesis. anamnesis that yeah. Matthew and Mark don't have. Well, where did they come up with this? Well, Luke says in the beginning of his gospel, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. Paul, Luke goes back 
And it's my view that he doesn't merely find a bunch of documents laying around in newsstands, but that he visits the Christian communities in their liturgies. I mean, it's mm-hmm. when people are gathering, they're gathering for liturgy. And that's well, he where he mention, picks up yeah. that's what it's passed on. Yeah, well, he doesn't mention any documents, but he speaks about those who are eyewitnesses. And I think it's a significant phrase, servants of the word. These were the official pastors of the church who were there to preach and teach the faith. And that's who he learned from, verbal passing on of of the faith. And certainly liturgy was a part of that. Um, you know, the point that you mentioned is very important, I think. The Reformation in the 16th century was an attempt to get black back to the simplicity of the gospel, away from what the Protestants had uh, perceived as this um, religion of Roman Catholicism, which had been had all these weeds in it, had all these vines in it of, of paganism. So they were trying to simplify the faith. Well, there's no doubt about that that same idea of getting back to simplicity carried on even into the 18th and 19th centuries when you get begin to get historical criticism. Historical critical method is starts going, starts getting going, and they still presume that simplicity. But um, I've now come to the conviction, I think perhaps as you have, that there was a lot more uh, elaborate <laughs> liturgy going on in the early church yeah. than we sometimes assumed is the case. And I think that First Corinthians is a great evidence of that because it was there, but it was never mentioned in any other case except here because there was a problem with it. If there wouldn't have been a problem, we may never have heard about it. When we talk about problems... <clears throat> Um, outside of the words of liturgy, the practice of liturgy, there were a, there was a need for Paul to challenge people who were receiving the body and blood of our Lord unworthily. Yeah. And let me read those, Ken, and then you reflect on them. For beginning in verse 27, 1 Corinthians 11, 27. Whoever... Therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just so much in this text, but it's clear that Paul is giving here a, he's putting a fence up. And this actually we used to call this his presbyterian fencing the table. <laughs> uh, he's putting a, he's putting a barrier up here, which is completely odious to the modern egalitarianism. But he's saying that you should not come to this table if you are not properly disposed to come to this table. Now he uses this very general word unworthily. Well, what does it mean to be unworthily, uh, to, to come and to eat and drink unworthily? Well, that's something that uh, we can infer from the text, but he gives us some idea of the seriousness of this when he says that the person who does this will be guilty, will be liable to the body and to the blood of the Lord. We might even translate it that he would be liable <laughs> for the body and the blood. It's as if he's crucifying Jesus um, if he comes and partakes of this. Because as he said back in chapter 10, 
uh, verses 16 through about uh, 19, he says there that the one who partakes at the altar shares in the God whose altar it is. So when we partake of the Lord's body and blood, we are saying that we belong to Jesus. But if we're partaking unworthily, within there is a, a lie, so to speak. We're not really belonging to him, but we're pretending that we are belonging to him. So this is where, this is a, to some, some degree a indication of what it means to partake of unworthily, to pretend to belong to Jesus when in fact we are not belonging to him. Ken, I've, I'm going to throw another passage in here, which in itself is a tough passage anyway, is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, because in this passage, you see a parallel between this idea of, of um, being guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Because the writer of Hebrews says, for, in beginning of verse 4, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then commit apostasy since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold him up to contempt. Yeah, yeah. Now that's it's a... That's re, yeah, that's... Re, go ahead, now, please. I was saying it's a tough passage. In fact, as a once saved, always saved Presbyterian, I didn't know what to do with this passage <laughs> because it, basically what it is saying, as I've come to see, is that almost all the language in verses 4 and 5 are about baptism about yeah, that's true. being baptized, yeah. receiving the enlightenment, being reborn, you're partakers of the Holy Spirit, you've tasted of... Now, verse 5 could very well be the Eucharist, having tasted the yeah. goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. I mean, that's receiving the body and blood of Jesus. But verse 6, yeah. if they then commit apostasy... I like that translation, commit apostasy. It's not just falling temporarily, it's committing apostasy. That's a very good point. Well, yeah. do you see it's a comparison impossible. here between what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 11? Well, I see, I see two comparisons. I, I, again, that, that translation that you read, which I presume perhaps is the RSV. Yes. Um, <clears throat> it says that commit apostasy. Um, it's different than the one who sins and who asks for forgiveness and, and repents from sin. Uh, certainly the Corinthians were sinners. It's not that Paul was rebuking them for being sinners. What he's rebuking them for is a kind of hypocritical obstinance that presumes that we don't sin, and therefore, but we still come to the one who is the forgiver of our sins. The writer of Hebrews is saying something very similar. He's saying that if this person falls away and, and completely rejects Christ, he can't come back because if he did, it would be as if he were re-crucifying the Son of God all over again. And that seems to parallel the other point in Corinthians, that he would be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 
So the exhortation is in verse 28, back in 1 Corinthians 11, let a man test himself and eat and drink. So there's a self-examination that goes on in receiving the Lord's body and blood. What you clearly get in this, and this is what I remember struck me some years ago, is how it's clear that Paul is not conceiving of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist as simply a, you might say, a, a celebration that is man-made. It's not a cel- it's not a ritual that you just go through. That it has these deep and serious implications about our relationship with God. And that's why the, the Holy Eucharist is so protected by the church. That's why a layman is not allowed to expose the Blessed Sacrament, because they want to make every caution. This is the very center of our faith. Christ crucified, passion, his death, his resurrection is given to us again in this sacrament. And that's why we must be ready to come as sinners in need of grace and sinners in need of forgiveness, but at the same time, not obstinate or rebellious against this body and blood. What strikes me, Ken, as we compare all these passages we've been looking at, the the First Corinthians passage, you know, let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup because he might be guilty of profaning the body and blood in an unworthy manner. Okay, there's the danger of that. What's he talking about? The, the Hebrews passage. The context is a person's been baptized. A, a person has received, tasted the goodness of the word of the Lord, yeah. the sacramental yeah. blessings. But then if they commit apostasy, well, what are they committing apostasy from? Are they just denying their membership in a local church? Or are they denying mm-hmm. this belief? Are they denying what that baptism did? Are they denying the reality of the Eucharist? Are they denying, as it says earlier passage in verse 2, the instructions about oblations? Are they denying the laying on of hands? We're talking about ordination. We're t- they denying the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment in verse 2, Hebrews 6, 2. So yeah. in other words, a yeah. person is questioning. And then, Ken, let's jump to the early church fathers. Ignatius' letter to the Smyrnians. They abstained from the Eucharist and from set time of prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. And then Justin Martyr, no one is allowed to partake of it other than the one who believes the things taught by us to be true. All these passages come together about the need for the Christian to accept the authority of the church as we receive the deposit of faith from our Lord Jesus to understand the reality of these great sacramental blessings that we received. Now, this is the great stumbling block of all of, uh, of Catholicism, and it's why it's so difficult for modern people to, in a sense, make sense of communion. Even many Catholics don't seem to understand what the church is really about. And by that I mean, it's this reality that you're pointing to here in, in these texts that these physical things, this water, this bread, this wine, they embody, they embody spiritual but divine realities, metaphysical realities. And that's why, so for example, in the, in, there's a character, a stamp placed upon a person in baptism. That's why baptism is so uh, important. Uh, there's, there's the reality of a, not just a, a mental idea, but a reality, metaphysical reality, that Christ's body and blood are mystically given through this. Um, 
it's clear that the, the passage you read from Ignatius, uh, the letter to the Smyrnans, chapter 7, how closely it reflects Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians, that is, the seriousness of coming to receive the Eucharist, because when a person comes to receive Jesus Christ in the sacrament of the Eucharist, he is making a profession of faith. That's why the church says, please, if you're not a Catholic, or if you're not in communion with the church, even as a Catholic, if you've been cut off from the church, don't receive the Eucharist, because that would be as if you were lying. You were saying, I'm a member of the church. You're making a profession. I love the church. I love everything about the church. I love everything about Jesus Christ. But if you're not at that place inwardly, then there's this dissonance between the way you're acting outwardly and what you are inwardly. So that's why Paul gives these uh, these very severe warnings about refraining from the Eucharist if you're not in the state of grace. Behind all this, Ken, let me ask you, would you see the uniqueness of the incarnational view that is the core of the Catholic theology, where it isn't yeah. a, a spirit just in a body, but as, as yeah. we are whole people, body and soul. I was thinking about this. In Psalm 49, for example, we have witness to the Old Testament still not quite understanding the resurrection of the body. Right, what we see right. in Psalm 49 is the psalmist struggling with this where he says, for example, in verse 11, their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they named lands for them. You know, So we have the body spending forever in Sheol, yet, verse 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me. So we have the bodies forever in the grave, but the yeah. soul, so trying to understand yeah. it, whereas the core of our Christian faith is we're resurrected body and soul, the unity of, yeah. of this. And the reason I bring this up in parallel to the Eucharist is that as a non-Catholic, I just wanted it to be an idea rather than recognizing mm-hmm. That the incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation is the key to understanding this great mystery. Uh, because we had a problem with the sensual aspect. Yeah, it just looks like bread and wine. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I recently had a, a friend uh, whose father uh, passed away. And um, he, I think being upset naturally, of course, he would. But, but his way of dealing with it was to say, you know, that... Uh, uh, well, it's just a, the, that body's just a shell, you know. His real soul is in heaven, and so forth. And and you know, I wasn't going to say anything, of course, because at a time of grief like that, you don't you don't try to theologically correct yeah, people. Right. But at the same time, think about that for just a moment. Uh, is that man's body just a shell for his real person's soul? Well, that's not really what the Christian gospel teaches, nor is any historic Christian faith really ever believed that. No, the, we are this body, soul, this psychophysical unit, so to speak. And that's what we are as persons. That's what we'll be in the final resurrection. It's just God's grace that we don't live in Sheol until the resurrection. What we do is we our soul goes to heaven to be with God. But even that is not the final state. The final state is when our bodies and souls are reunited in the resurrection. 
It's interesting. One of my former um, students actually just wrote, wrote a book about this. You mentioned Psalm 49. Uh, he wrote a book. It's Dr. Matthew Ramage. It's called Dark Passages of the Bible. And he talks about Psalm 49 <laughs> in that book. And he's talking about this problem of this very incomplete understanding of death and what happens after death. And you're absolutely right. In the Old Testament, that's the beauty of the Christian uh, of Christ coming into the world to reveal to us the fullness of truth, to give us that fullness in the church. And not only is his incarnation the center, but that incarnation in a way is continued mystically in the Eucharist. So that that's why the Eucharist is so central to our faith is because it's really Jesus again, still on earth, now under the presences of bread and wine, now mystically, we might say, but nevertheless, really there that, uh, that, that, and that means that, that the material world in which we live is good and, and blessed and valid. Um, the danger of Manichaeanism, to call the material world itself evil, is always a danger for a Christian as a reaction against the evil that we do see in the world. But we must always remember this created world that God has made is good. It was so good, so important to God, that he actually came into human flesh to redeem this human flesh. One more thing I'd like to bring us to. There's so many things, Ken, in this passage, but let's look at verse 26 again. Let me ask you a couple questions. Um, Paul writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A couple things. Number one, in what way is each time that we eat and drink the Eucharist of our Lord Jesus, a proclamation of his death. And second of all, why didn't he say you proclaim his resurrection? Mm. That's an excellent question. Uh, the second one's a little bit more puzzling, but the first one I think is that not so much a, a, that we need to explain Paul here, but we need to use these words to explain what the liturgy is. The liturgy of the church, of the Eucharistic liturgy, as we see it in um, seed form with the Didache, as we see it outlined in Justin Martyr in the mid-2nd century in the first apology, what it clearly means is that the liturgy is a demonstration, or it's a setting out, a setting forth of the drama of redemption. And That's why it's so important for our people of our churches to understand that when we come to Mass, it's not just a Sunday obligation. It's it's a very replaying of the drama of salvation. And we're being invited into that drama of whatever God is doing in the world of redeeming people. So when he says, when you eat the bread and drink the wine, you proclaim the Lord's death. Why the Lord's death? Well, it could be two reasons. One, it could be a synecdoche. That is, he's using the part for the whole. He's using the death of the Lord to represent the whole complex of the passion, death, and resurrection. But if he's specifically thinking of the death, why the death? Because the death is that center point at which God comes down, as it were, to accept the sacrifice of his Son for us. The death of Christ is his 
The cross was his altar. He offered himself as priest and as victim on the altar in order to redeem us from sin. So there's a centrality to the death of Christ because that death alone is the only death that can redeem us from the final enemy that is death. You know, you might be introducing us into a topic for next week, the issue of suffering, because so many modern Christians just want to jump to the resurrection. They want a cross without a crucifix. They want a cross without Jesus hanging on it. They want they want crosses jewelry, you know. I mean, uh, and so we just want a resurrected Jesus, and it's all joy and jumping. And, and uh, wait a second, you know, we are to imitate Christ. We share with Him in Christ, and maybe next week we can look at that Colossians one twenty four passage, but <clears throat> or sometime in the future. But can two things jump out at me earlier in the book of First Corinthians, chapter two, verses two? Paul says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we see him proclaiming as the center of his preaching ministry the remembrance of Jesus crucified. Jesus crucified for our sins and our death. He's not denying the resurrection. You know, in, later in First yeah, Corinthians yeah. 15, we recognize the centrality of the resurrection, because if he wasn't resurrected, then we're all a bunch of fools. There wouldn't be any of these Absolutely. letters. <laughs> but the core of it is don't forget his crucifixion and what he did for us. And every time we receive his body and blood, we remember, but not merely a mental, we experience this new covenant. Yeah. Yeah, and he says back in chapter 1 uh, something very similar when he talks about that this this proclamation of the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block for the Jews. What What is it? Well, what is it that, that's a stumbling block? He says that uh, it's this proclamation of Jesus Christ. And this proclamation of Jesus Christ, look at verse 23. This is chapter 1, verse 23. We proclaim Christ crucified yes christ crucified and then as you said uh, quoted in just a few verses later over in chapter i've determined to know nothing but jesus christ and him crucified for us so it's that crucifixion that is both foolishness how could de- his death re- liberate us from death and it's also a stumbling block to the greeks but it's our glory as Christians that Christ died for us. All right. Thank you, Ken. We I feel like we've just scratched the surface of this wonderful passage. Those of you listening, I hope this has been encouragement to you. If you go to chnetwork.org, you'll be able to link onto the Deep in Scripture uh, section. And we'd love to have your thoughts and questions. Maybe you have a, a verse that you'd like Ken and I to look at next week. But otherwise, we'll be here, right, Ken? Absolutely. Enjoy it very much. (laughs) Well, thank you all. And uh, again, uh, our call is to be deep in Scripture, deep in history, so that we can be deep in Christ. God bless you. See you next week.